0: Maggie, well, turn there if you're not already there. We'll get there in a second. But I'd like to start with a question for you. Have you ever heard of the children's book, an epic tale called The Pow Pow Fish? Here it be, look at its sparkly cover. Here it is up there if you'd like to see it there. Wonderful story. It's a big hit with Karis and I, we enjoy this story. If you're not familiar with it, in it, this fellow here, this pout-pout fish, he's a very gloomy fish. His friends tell him he needs to cheer up, which is very helpful when your friends do that. And he refuses to do so because he cannot help it. He is a pout-pout fish. Thank you very much. It is just the way I am, he insists. Blub, 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 he says. Well, then all of a sudden, in the middle of all his pouting, his negativity, his discouragement, All of a sudden, a fish named Miss Shimmer, she appears, and she gives him a kiss. And suddenly, he transforms from a pout-pout fish to a kiss-kiss fish. It's it's a stunning piece of literature. Beautiful. Should have received the Nobel Prize in literature. A real page-turner. That twist at the end. Well, hear ye now the parable of the pout-pout fish. The pout-pout fish represents many of us here today, right? We pout. We get discouraged, we get downhearted, and rightfully so, right? We have a good excuse for being discouraged. Life is very, very difficult. It's just the way we are, maybe. It's just our personality, the way life has forced us to be. And there's plenty of reasons we could pout, right? But Miss Shimmer represents the gospel that comes in and turns our frown upside down, transforms our pouting to praise. Now, I know exactly what you all are thinking. This is what you were thinking. That is the most utterly ridiculous opening illustration I have ever done. You've ever done, Matt, and you've done some pretty ridiculous ones before. Go back to the Lord of the Rings illustrations or llama references. You're better off there. But as utterly ridiculous as this parable is, the point does remain, and I hope it sticks out to you, that the gospel comes into our lives with great power to take us from discouragement to encouragement. It has a power to give joy the most discouraged among us that is what we want out of the book of Ephesians that's what we want in this church we want a church that has that gospel culture we talked about two weeks ago not a church of, of of powders but a church of praisers who just can't get over the amazing reality that Jesus died for them saints who cannot help but be positive even in the most difficult of circumstances We want to gospelize our discouragement and our complaining with the truth of the gospel. And that's what I hope this message does for you this morning. But I want you to know, uh, despite what you are experiencing, despite everything that's happened to you this week, despite feeling maybe as you scroll through Instagram that everyone else has a better life than you, don't we feel that at times? Despite all of that, right now I submit to you that you could not have a better life. You have a great life. You, yes, you have a fantastic life. How could I possibly say such a thing? Well, because you have a great life in Christ. If you are in him, if you've accepted Christ, your life is 100% for a fact great. And if you don't believe me, we're going to look here in Ephesians 1 and see this passage prove to us the realities of our life. And they are great. It'll show us that we have a great life. It'll show us that we have a great church and that God is on the move. He is working here in our midst with all our flaws and all our failures. How do we have such a great life? How can we have such a great church? Because we have a great God who has done such great and amazing things for us. And God is after his own glory through this church in Christ. That is our theme. You see it here on the screen. You see it on either side of the stage and in the atrium. The theme of Ephesians, the theme for our year ahead of us, as Pastor Robert laid it out last week, is this. God's glory through the church in Christ. They all go together. We'll see all three of them all throughout Ephesians. God's glory shining radiantly through broken, simple, messy churches like ours is, all because we are in Christ. Christ. In Christ, it changes everything about our lives. Being in Christ means joy, not pouting. It means a life of significance, of purpose, of power. A life lived to the glory of God is a great life no matter what happens to you. Now, I'm not trying to minimize by this the pain and brokenness of your lives. I'm just trying to encourage you that there are still, in spite of the pain, great things that are true of you right at this very moment, that no person, that no job, that no rainy week, that no worldly power could ever take away from you. I know good and well that we live in a broken world. And I look out at this audience and I see many, many broken people by all sorts of different circumstances, by relational tension, by jobs that are just so, so stressful and and difficult bosses weighing down upon you, by death and the devastation that grief brings upon you. We are broken people. And there are terrible things that have happened to us and will happen to us continually in this broken world. And so I know... Your life is broken in some way, and my heart breaks for you. Life is broken in the physical world, and Satan is active, and the evil one is at work. And don't you sometimes pause and think to yourself, man, I really detest what the evil one is doing in our midst. You ever think about that? Man, just the brokenness, the devastation, the ruin of lives around me or your own life. Oh, man, he is at work. He is doing terrible things. And sometimes you just pause and hate Satan for a moment, and you just have this anger rile up in you. I think sometimes it's an appropriate anger at all the destruction that the evil one, that sin, that even our own flesh, that this evil world brings upon us, the ruin of life. I know it's a, a good piece of fiction, whether a movie, a show, or a book, when I hate the villain, you know? ever read something and man you just want to go through the pages of that book and you want to sock that villain in the face he just is driving you crazy he's just an evil villain doing terrible things or 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 just get real angry at that the villain on the screen and man he just drives you crazy that's how we sometimes feel about the evil one the real villain behind all villains the one ruining so many things i think it's appropriate at times to mourn that to grieve through that to feel just the difficulty of living in a broken world But we can't stop there because there is a greater reality right now. There is a spiritual reality that is realer than all the very real pain that you experience in this life. You may be cursed with every physical curse on earth and your life just just falling apart. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 is true about you right now. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. Let's read it again. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? That's profound. That's encouraging. You in Christ at this very moment, if you are in him, you are blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's incredible. I know it doesn't feel like that at many times in our life, but it is true. In Christ, you right now are blessed. You have a great life, and you have an even greater life to come when he will put all the broken pieces back together. As one commentator put it, the devil may curse, and he does. We see that. But if God blesses, what does it matter? If God has his blessing on us, nothing can thwart that. Another writer says, the devil knows your sin, but Jesus knows your name. Others may curse you out. They may discard you. They may reject you. They may even persecute you. Life may beat down upon you. But in the midst of all that, this is true of you. God has blessed you and granted you a spiritual reality that this terrible broken world can never shake it, can never take it away. As the song reminded us, when Satan tempts us to despair, and doesn't he, man, I think about my life this past week, he puts those lies in, he causes us to despair. I got so discouraged, all of the, the, the brokenness in my life and others, oh, you're just tempted to despair, what hope is there? But the song says, when Satan tempts you to despair, what should you do? You should look up and see him there, who did what? Who made an end to all your sin. He died for us. And when our accuser, as the other song says, makes the claim that you should die for your offense, what do you do? You point him to that rugged frame where you found life at Christ's expense. Satan, this evil world, may curse, but God right now blesses. And right now, in spite of all the voices screaming at you, the blood of Jesus speaks for you. Speaks louder, speaks more powerfully. There is a spiritual reality. And that's how Paul starts this book. After those introductory verses we talked about a few weeks ago, he launches in with the word blessed. Blessed be God. He wants to remind them, these people who were in Ephesus, and remember Ephesus, it was a dark place. It was a hostile culture. There was that temple of Diana with all its immorality and all the glory of this pagan goddess on display. They had to walk past and see that wicked world prospering every day. They're in Ephesus. They're in a broken world. But he reminds them that they're also in Christ. And if that's true, they are as much right now in heaven, secure as Christ himself is. And so he starts by reminding them that they have every reason to praise God. The lord because they have been blessed by god in so many ways they should bless god in return they should praise him they should thank him well what else should we do paul give us some advice give us some life counsel paul well he doesn't give us any in this section of course we know he'll get to the practical application in the second half of the book but here at the start there's no life changing advice there's no practical counsel for everyday living his advice is simple praise god you've been blessed Rejoice in him, glorify him. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want you to fall in love again with Jesus and be reminded of what is true about you right now in Christ. So true, so real in spite of all the brokenness that it causes you to rejoice in him, to praise him. I want to give you through Paul's words here a fresh glimpse of the gospel once again so you can echo with John Newton man amazing grace how sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me we have to start here before we get to all the practical commands of of loving one another building a gospel culture transparency of safety of patience with one another all those things will come in the second half of the book but first we must start with the gospel and be amazed at grace once again and find there the motivation to live with love toward others Before we dive in here to the specific blessings that Paul lists, I want to give you a few initial observations. Just as we work through this very complicated passage, and that's really the first one, this is going to be complicated. Remember those diagrams I laid out the other week of all the different words as one long run-on sentence? This is a complicated passage. And Paul's just pouring out his heart and passion for the gospel. But because of that, it's hard to kind of split it up into sections. So I'm going to try to go verse by verse. I will jump around a little bit in this passage. Don't worry, next week we'll circle back and and finish up um, this passage. Some try to break this passage up in different ways, like there are past blessings, there's present blessings, future blessings. Certainly you have this idea that there are some blessings from God the Father, blessings from God the Son, blessings from God the Holy Spirit. There's different ways to break it up. We'll kind of take it thematically, uh, working through verse by verse the first section and jumping to some other sections as well. Also, this passage is very poetic. Do you like a good poem? In fact, some people think this was actually an early hymn. There's not really a lot of evidence for that, but it could have actually been an early song that this church would have sung that maybe Paul or somebody else wrote. Or maybe it was just a way to teach new believers kind of the basics of the faith before they had their baptism. It certainly is poetic in its language, and we certainly know Paul enjoyed singing, um, and it was fitting that we sang, Come Praise and Glorify, which really is this passage put to music, a good one to sing through this week to remind you of the truths that we'll talk about. So it's complicated, it's poetic, and then the phrase, in Christ, will appear over and over and over again. I told you to look for that through the whole book of Ephesians. Hopefully you had a chance to read through the whole book. But particularly in this section, man, it just appears over and over and over again. In Christ or in him or through him, different words, but it's repeated constantly. Now, Katie Minking reminded me the other week that back when I taught through this book in junior high several years ago, I had them clap every time in Christ appeared. I'm tempted to do that, but I know you guys, I don't know about clapping. So we'll, we'll, we'll not do that, but you could do it on your own. You can clap in your head. You'll do a lot of clapping in this passage. And then finally, it is a doxology, which is just a fancy word of saying this hymn, this passage, this section is all to the praise of God. It's, it's really a praise song. And that's the goal. That's the driving focus of this whole section. I don't want us to lose sight of that in all the, the messiness and complicatedness of trying to, to understand exactly what it means. Here's what Paul is getting at. He wants to cause the church in Ephesus and us today to praise and glorify our God. So it's fitting that we started with the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's why that song has that name. And we'll end the service with that as well. That should frame our whole lives, praising God, the source of so many blessings. And we'll see Paul kind of split this section up by inserting a little chorus in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. He'll say something like, to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. And so he'll keep that theme in front of us. Well, let's jump into these first two blessings, and then we'll finish uh, the rest next week. Look back with me, if you would, at verse four. Verse four, even as he chose us in him, that's where you'd clap, but we're not doing that, but you can in your mind. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, the first blessing we see here is verse 4. You are chosen. You are chosen. Now, does that word chosen, God choosing us, does that make you a little nervous, make you a little confused? Hold up. We're going to address that elephant in the room. Just put a pause in that. We'll come back to that. But first, I want us to see uh, what this verse is saying and what the words mean. So, let me ask you a question. For what did God choose us? For what purpose? To what end did God choose us? Look at the verse. He says, he chose us to be in him. He chose to place us in him. And then later he goes on to say that we should be holy and blameless, Before him. So the goal of God's choice. What he was after there. Was to place us in Christ. There it is again. To unite us with Christ. And so because we're in him. What's true of Christ. Is true of us. So just as Christ is holy and blameless. And he is right. Christ never sinned once. He lived a perfect life. He is God. He is holy and blameless. He never sinned. And so we in him have that same status. His righteousness is applied to us in the gospel. So we also stand before him, before God the Father, holy and blameless. This is amazing. You and I, sinners as we are, and we can think back this week of all the times we sinned, we failed, we messed up, and yet right now, if we are in him, we stand before God, holy and blameless. That's amazing. We didn't work for this. We didn't deserve this. And yet this is true. This should certainly inspire us to live holy and blameless lives in our everyday life. But it's also true of us right now at this moment. We are holy and blameless. We are saints. Remember, that's what Paul calls us. We are saints. We are set apart ones. We are sanctified. We are holy ones. In spite of whatever's going on in our lives, if we're in him, we are saints. Now, when did this happen? When did Paul say this happened? Look back at the verse. He says it happened before the foundation of the world. This simply means before creation began, before this world ever came into being. God did this in eternity past, which really shouldn't be called the past because there was no time at all back then. God is a creator of time, and this happened before time and creation began. God's always existed. He created time. He had his purposes set out before time began. And this, as difficult as it is to wrap our minds around it, this would actually be very encouraging to us. Because don't you get sick of how fast or how slow time moves? Doesn't it just wear you down how time goes and it flies and your kids grow up or your loved ones pass away? And then yet when you want time to go slowly, when you want time to go fast, excuse me, time just slows down and it mocks you and you're sitting there bored and you wish it wouldn't move on. Time is not a pleasant friend of ours. We can't control it. Instead, it rules our lives, and it ruins many of our lives sometimes. And yet, God rules time. He is the time authority, the Lord of time. And before he set clocks spinning in motion, before time began, before creation, Paul says he chose us. One commentary writer encourages us this way. A God who chose you before time, when only he existed... He will not leave you victim to the time and tides of life. That's encouraging. That's very encouraging. Well, so that's being chosen. Let's move on to the second blessing, which ties super closely in with this one. And that is verse 5. Look down at verse 5. Paul says, not only are you chosen, you're also predestined. Predestined. That's not a word you use in everyday conversation, is it? unless you're just really smart. I don't know how you would even use that in everyday life. Uh, Or unless you're Emperor Palpatine in which you say, fulfill your destiny. I'm not going to do his voice, although I'm sorely tempted to. Um, This is not that type of destiny that we're talking about here, this evil destiny. God's predestination means he appointed something ahead of time. That's what the word means. He has a plan. And please note that just as with his choosing of us, so now with his predestining of us, it is done in love. That's the phrase that comes in between these two blessings, so much so that we're not sure which one it applies to. It kind of applies to both. He chose us in love, and he predestined us in love. It was all out of his love for us. Now, for what did he predestine us? Let's ask that same question of this section. Well, look at verse 5, and you'll see that he predestined us for adoption as sons. So this isn't an impersonal picking. Our destiny is to be his children, to be in a relationship with him as our father. As the song says, Jesus commands my destiny. And he uses a metaphor here of adoption, which is a powerful metaphor we see in a number of places in the scripture of what God has done for us. I know several of you have experience with that, maybe some painful, but some very beautiful I'm very encouraged by our foster care ministry here in this church and all the good work many of you do, whether you're participating in foster care yourself or you're supporting those who do. You're actually, in doing that and participating in that, you're picturing the gospel itself. You are following the example also of our Christian forebears in the early church in this time. Because you see, in Ephesus and in many Roman cities... If a child was unwanted for whatever reason, but particularly if it was a girl, and a rudimentary abortion was not performed, often the kids would be discarded. They'd be taken out to the hills around Ephesus, and they'd be left on the side of a mountain to die of exposure. And there are records, according to one preacher, of Christians going up on those mountains and taking those babies and adopting them for their own and bringing them home and giving them a home and a place to belong. And that's beautiful. That is a beautiful thing. From even the early centuries, we Christians were a pro life people. Christians dedicated to preserving the lives of both born and unborn. To be a Christian was to be pro life. And even today, we continue that same path dedicated to acts of preserving all life. And it's appropriate, last Sunday was Pro Life Sunday. May we always continue to follow in the footsteps of those early saints and be dedicated to life and doing whatever we can to support it. Fostering, adopting, supporting pro-life ministries, advocating in every sphere of life for a pro-life holistic ethic. But here, Paul uses that metaphor of adoption, which would have been prevalent in that time, and he uses it to describe us. We were like those babies left on the side of the mountain, rejected, unwanted, unloved, discarded. But God, with mercy in his eyes, he came down and he picked us up out of the dirt and he brought us home. He gave us a place to belong. He became our father and we his children. That's amazing. But that's not it on this metaphor of adoption. Skip down and look a little further into verse 11 and Paul will come back to this illustration. Look at verse 11, and you'll see, not only are we adopted, but we also get an inheritance. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. So another purpose of predestination was to allow us to obtain an inheritance. Not only are we adopted, but we're also given the status of adopted children, and we can inherit all that God has for us, all the benefits of being one of God's children, this glorious future inheritance. We are his heirs. We are God's royal family. Now, I don't know what you think of the royal family. Some of you might like them. Some of you might very much not like them. I don't know what your feelings are, but I can tell you this. King Charles, Queen Camilla, William, Kate, and I suppose we'll include Harry and Meghan. Some of you might not like that. We'll throw them in there. All of these royals and all their pomp, and their glory, and all the wealth and prestige that they have, they pale in comparison to the glory of the inheritance and adoption that God has given us. He is the King of Kings. So yes, William may inherit the throne one day and he'll get to wear the fancy clothes and participate in all the strange ceremonies, but that is nothing compared to what you and I will get to experience as inheritors have as the children of God. One day, the Bible tells us we will even reign with Christ. He will be on the throne and we will be right there with him. What a blessing for us. Discarded as we were, sinful, messy, now we have every spiritual blessing. And this is an amazing one. We're adopted and we get this inheritance. Well, how were we adopted? Flashing back to verse 5, he says, we were adopted through Jesus Christ, which is really just another way of saying in Christ. Everything that happens to us happens to us in Christ, through Christ, for Christ's glory. So that we were adopted through Christ, and then why were we adopted? Well, in verse 5, he says, according to the purpose of his will. In other words, that was the choice of God. Could be translated, this word purpose, the good pleasure of his will. What does God enjoy doing? What does God get pleasure from? He enjoys adopting us, bringing us into his family. That is his purpose. But notice he continues in verse 6 and say another purpose of this is that it would result in praise to his glorious grace. Notice he includes another little chorus in his hymn And says, hey, let's stop and let's praise God for his amazing grace. For being chosen, for being predestined, for being adopted, for being made holy and blameless. His grace is amazing. It is glorious. And he returns in this verse also to more about union with Christ. He says, with this grace, God has blessed us. Which is not the same word he used in verse 3. It's actually a different word that kind of means he graced us. So God graced us with grace. It's grace upon grace. It's amazing. And he did all this in the beloved, Paul says, which is just another way of putting in Christ once again. He has placed us in his beloved son in Christ, which means we too are beloved. Well, that's encouraging for our week, isn't it? Since you are in Christ, God looks upon you the same way he looks upon his beloved son. He is well pleased with you. You right now are beloved. You are in the beloved one. Wow, that's encouraging. Hopefully you get an understanding from these verses how amazing these blessings are. But now, as promised, let's address the elephant in the room. How does all this work? Some of you have been thinking it all along. How, How can God choose and predestined people. I mean, isn't that a bit unfair of him? It's kind of arbitrary. Like God's just out there picking his favorites, and we don't have any choice in the matter. No agency. This concept goes against our natural American sentiment of having equal opportunity for all, right? And the independence to make our own choices, to shape our own lives. Well, perhaps it brings up some bad memories, like getting picked last for the dodgeball team. They're picking teams. They picked all their teams And there you are, standing there. You're the last one to be picked. Not that I have any personal experience with that at all. Um, But if I did, the joke was on them because I was actually pretty good at dodgeball, I'll have to say. I was very good at the dodging part, not the throwing part. So maybe that's why I was not picked. But it kind of brings up these bad memories of of just this willy-nilly choice. Well, it's important for us to know right off the bat that good Christians disagree on how all this works. And they have all through church history. And they have even today in this church. In fact, even within my own Bible study in this church, I have a good friend who believes one way and a good friend who believes the other way, and we all get along and we all have a wonderful time together. It's understandable since our statement of faith doesn't get into the specifics on this, and I actually think it's a helpful thing in my opinion because it demonstrates that we believers, though we disagree on secondary issues, we can still unite and get along. I think that's one of our strengths here as a church, and I commend you for your work to maintain unity on a topic like this. I'm also not going to pretend to solve this difficult doctrine today, but I do hope to maybe provide a little bit of clarity for you that will enable you to do a little bit of further study on your own. And of course, we pastors, myself included, are always available if you have any further questions. So, how do we make sense of this choosing and this predestination? Well, I think we make sense of it by going to a parallel passage in Romans 8. You can turn over there if you'd like. Romans 8, 28 through 30 kind of gives us a little bit more detail about how this works. And Paul there lays out a logical, or some would even say a chronological, ordering of God's choice. This, then this, then this, then this. And so if you look at verse 29 in particular, Paul says that those whom God foreknows, he predestines. And then in verse 30, those who he predestines, he calls, and those he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies. This is what's called the golden chain. You can see, I tried to lay it out there for you, the links in this chain. Now, there's some question as to where Paul's word that he used here in Ephesians 1, the first word he used that God has chosen us or elected us, where does that fall in this? Paul doesn't use that word here. Well, some would say it falls before foreknowledge. Some would say after. Some would say it just means the same thing. We're not 100% sure, but for the sake of argument, let's say that foreknowledge comes first. So, your question becomes great. What is God's foreknowledge? Another word we don't use very often. Well, this is where two sides are formed. One side says that God's foreknowledge here literally means to just know a fact ahead of time. So God knew from the foundation of the world who would later choose to put their faith and trust in him, who would believe in him. And so he chooses those people on the basis of their future, free choice to believe in him. And this makes some degree of sense. But the other side says that foreknowledge means a little bit more than that. More than just knowing a fact ahead of time. More than just knowing intellectually, okay, this thing is going to happen. Of course, God knows everything. So it's not a matter of whether he knows everything. But it's why he made this choice. And they would say foreknowledge is a more relational term of setting favor on someone beforehand. Now, how would they come up with that? Well, they point to passages like 1 Peter 1.20, which says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Does that mean that God just knew the facts about uh, what Jesus would do? No, it has to mean more than that. It seems to mean in that passage that God had this planned out ahead of time, that he set his favor on Christ. And we see the word know used in that regard all throughout the scriptures. Not just God knowing our names, but also having a special relationship with his people. And so they would say foreknowledge is interchangeable with more of the idea of God choosing, setting his favor on people ahead of time. Now, notice that both views here say that God chose ahead of time. That's not up for discussion. It's a matter instead of why he chose. That's where the disagreements come. Is it because one day we'd later choose him? Or because he just sovereignly decided that would be the case? All right, now you're saying to yourself, great, my brain is oozing out a little bit, but I'm doing all right. Which one is the correct answer, Matt? Well, my goal is not to necessarily convince you of one of these particular views, but challenge you to do your own study and come to your own conclusion based on what the Bible says, not based on your background or your preferences of what you've heard. Read the Bible and come to your conclusions, particularly passages like Romans 8 through chapter 11 uh, that would be very helpful for you. But with the permission of the pastoral team, I would like to share with you my personal view, which of these I choose, since you have a right to know what your pastors believe theologically. And I think it'll help us make sense and do justice to the passage in front of us back in Ephesians chapter one. So I would take the second position. God chooses based on nothing other than his own sovereign will. Why would I think that? Well, go back to Ephesians one. Back to Ephesians one. And I'll lay it out for you here. Ephesians 1, look back at verse 5. He predestined us, Paul says, according to what? What does he say? According to the purpose of his will. It does not say he predestined based on our future faith or future choice. He says it was a purpose of his will. And he repeats this idea twice more in this passage. So skip down Uh, to verse 9, another blessing. Uh, This will be a little commercial for next week. We'll go into more of the specifics of this blessing next week, but I do want to point out how Paul uses these same words here in verses 9 and 10. Let me read them. Making known to us the mystery, let me define that, the mystery Paul will later define in chapter 3 of Ephesians as just the fact that we Gentiles get to be included in God's plan in the gospel. This is for all people. So, He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to, what does he say? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, there it is again, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this verse is laying out for us God's plan, God's purpose, God's will is actually very, very encouraging. He set this forth, Based on his purpose, his good pleasure, his will to reveal this to us, that we can get in on this amazing gospel. And not only that, but he has a plan for the fullness of time, for the future. And this plan is going to be to unite all things in him heaven, earth, he's going to unite everything in him. In other words, what this complicated verse is saying is that God has a plan, and that God is working that plan. It's his good pleasure. And he's going to accomplish this by Christ, in Christ, for Christ, uniting everything, organizing everything, summing up everything into Christ. If you wonder if the chaos and brokenness of this world, or people's uh, difficult decisions, or or just the, the difficulties of life, whatever may happen to you this week, whatever happened last week, is that determining my life? Is that in control? No, this verse says, Chaos is not in control. God is in control and he has a plan and all is proceeding according to God's plan until we get to the fullness of time and all things are made new and all the broken things are put back together. That's an encouraging uh, verse there. I look forward to spending more time on that next week. But then skip down back to verse 11, which we talked about uh, a little bit ago, talking about, excuse me, inheritance. Notice he says, this inheritance, having been predestined according to what? Well, once again, according to the purpose, a different word, but same idea, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is at work in this life according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. Based on God's choice, that is his purpose. Now, we may not fully understand that. It's difficult to comprehend, isn't it? But what I believe Paul is telling us here is that God chose us based on his sovereign will. But remember, this comes in the midst of Paul saying, in love he did this. He did this out of love. He's not being unfair. Remember, we all deserve hell, do we not? We're all sinners. God didn't have to save any of us, but in love he decided to. And the Bible makes clear this choice has nothing to do with our character. In fact, first corinthians 1 and james chapter 2 says that god intentionally chooses the least the poor the unwise the unloved and that's good news for people like us it's as if god chooses the weakest dodgeball player to be on his team with nothing to offer him no merit of our own it's all by his glorious grace that's encouraging encouraging for sinners such as we are Now, having laid that out, I want to be clear, you don't have to agree with me. Good Christians disagree, but there are some things we must all agree on, regardless of where we come down in our theological persuasion. Here's some non-negotiable biblical facts that we can all unite around. First of all, God is sovereign. The Bible makes it clear. God is the one who is king. He rules and reigns. And if he's not in control, well, man, I shudder to think who is in control of my life. You may believe that God limits his sovereignty in some way, but we must all believe that God is still sovereign and in control. But secondly, mankind is responsible for his sin. Jesus lays the blame on these people. In in John 5, 40, he says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You have chosen to refuse me, to turn away from me, and you've chosen the path of sin. And somehow both of these first two are true simultaneously. No one is going to go to hell because God is unfair or unjust. We all stand guilty because of our sins. We're responsible for those wrong choices, and we will bear the punishment unless we turn and put our faith in Christ. So I hope if you're here today and all this is just, whoa, convoluted. I don't understand this. I, I, I've never even heard much about Christ. Well, I hope you get this. Don't ask yourself, well, am I chosen? Ask yourself this. Is God working in my heart? You're sitting here under the, the, this message. The gospel is being laid out for you. So turn, repent, believe in him. This offer is for you today. But thirdly, we must still evangelize, pray, and obey. God's sovereignty should not make us lazy. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2, to work out your salvation because it is God working in you. Because God is at work in our lives, we're motivated to obey him in whatever he calls us to do. Specifically, we can't be apathetic about the biblical call to share the gospel. We can't just be lazy and assume, ah, God will work it all out. No, that's not the right way to internalize this. William Carey, the father of modern missions, had to encounter this when he wanted to go to India and people of a theological persuasion tried to dissuade him and say, ah, we don't need to do that. And he had to work against them. Still believing in God's sovereignty, he said that is what compelled him to go and reach the nations and go to India and share the gospel. Because we have no idea how God will work. So let's get busy sharing the gospel with all and watching Uh, God do amazing things, leaving the results up to him. Fourthly, unity is essential. Paul's going to make that point loud and clear in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, chapter 4, he makes the case that to disunify over non-gospel essential doctrines like this one is actually to compromise the gospel itself. So be very careful before you create disunity with fellow believers in this church over theological labels. It's a very serious matter to cause division, Paul warns us, and good Christians have been able to put aside their differences and work together for the gospel all throughout church history. In fact, J.J. told me a story about John Wesley, who was on one side of the theological spectrum on this, versus George Whitefield, the evangelist, who was on the complete opposite side, and they did not get along theologically. But one person asked George Whitefield, He said, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? And Whitfield said, yes, you're right. We won't see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. I like that. That's theological charity that we should all long for in this church and so need in our churches over these secondary doctrines. We're supposed to be known for love after all, right? That's an attractive gospel culture that the world needs to see in our day and age. So, please, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul will tell this church later in chapter 4. Then theological tension is okay. Theological tension is a great concept that I was taught in seminary. It's the idea of being able to hold multiple things that are in tension, but are biblical, being able to hold them both. I think that's something we need to do. Maybe you've been hearing me describe all this, and you're just plumb confused because you uh, think that I have logically contradicted myself. And quite frankly, I probably have to some degree. In fact, go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say to them, this is confusing. Go ahead and do it. Say, this is confusing. Very good, you got it out there. It's confusing. How can God be both sovereign and man be responsible for his choices? We try to wrap our minds around this, but some things we just have to admit are beyond our comprehension. And that's okay because we'd expect a God who is above us all to be beyond our human ability to logic and understand wouldn't we but you say doesn't this just cause doubt and confusion in our kids as we're trying to teach them how all this works and we have to admit that we don't know well actually i think that's a great thing to teach your kids say that good believers differ on things that the bible is not 100 percent clear on that's okay It's better for them to know that in your home and to be taught that rather than to leave your home and suddenly discover that Christians disagree on things and that some things are not crystal clear. It's a good thing to teach this theological tension. But finally, we can all unite around this. God's glory is number one, is it not? God's glory is our mission in life. We all can land with Paul and say, this is all, however it works itself out, This is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Land where Paul lands in verse 12, choosing to praise our great and awesome God, being amazed about his grace that we who first hoped in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That is our mission in life, however it works out. This is for God's glory. Now, I know, friends, that this is a difficult passage theologically. I hope I've brought some level of clarity and made it maybe a little bit less confusing. Uh, if not, and your brain just feels like pure goo, then at least get this. God has a plan. God is in control. And right now, at this very moment, he has blessed you. In Christ, with so many blessings, you have a great life. Spiritually, in the heavenly places. All is going according to God's plan. Even on the hardest day of your life, even in the worst unexpected trial, all is going according to God's good and glorious plan. Do I understand how God could have a plan for our good and for his glory and yet simultaneously not be responsible for the evil that happens in your life? No, I don't fully understand that. But the Bible tells me it's true. So I embrace it. I stand on it. I believe that God's got this, that God's in control, that God is always working in our lives, loving us, building us up. Our destiny is assured and secure. Time itself cannot thwart it because it was established before time began. Grace has taught our hearts to fear and grace has relieved our fears. And through many dangers, toils, snares, the brokenness of life, Grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home where all will be made new. God has a purpose, and it is his good pleasure. He loves us. He's for us. Grace is lavished on us. We are in him. We are in the beloved. We are made holy and blameless even after our worst failure. We're adopted and given an inheritance even when we feel like trash, We always belong to God, even when we don't feel like we belong anywhere else on this earth. We are always beloved, even when we don't feel like anyone loves or cares about us. We are always blessed. So how do we respond? What could we possibly do in response to these amazing, incredible truths? Well, there's only one thing we can do. Get out your notepad, and here's your to-do list for this week. Number one, praise him. Number two, praise him again. Number three, praise him again and maybe use a song to praise him. Number four, praise him and be in prayer with him daily, praising him through all your thanksgiving and supplication and prayer. The only response we can have to this is to praise our God, to glorify him. May the glory of his name be the passion of this church. May that be what we're all about. We belong to him. We're blessed by him. We're beloved by him. And how do we respond? Oh, we praise him. We glorify him, the king of kings. All week long, every way we can find to do it, we're praising him. Because we know that God is working. And God will bring glory to himself through this church in Christ. That is what is going on right now. No matter what's going on in your life. That is what is true of us today. God's glory is at work through broken, messy people like we are, this church, because we are in him. We are in Christ. So let's glorify him for his glory being displayed in our lives for all he has done for us. Let us pray. Oh, God, how could we even put into words the amazing things you've done for us? We are a broken, weary, discouraged people. And it's so easy to do that. i found in my life the pouting, the discouragement, the grumpiness, it's just so easy. There's so many reasons to do it. But lift our eyes beyond that, Lord, this week. And show us what is true right now that you have chosen to make us holy and blameless. That you have predestined us to be your children with this glorious inheritance in the future, with this glorious plan unfolding that one day all will be united in Christ. All brokenness will be fixed. All ruins will be repaired. Oh, we long for that day. Give us hearts that are in love with the gospel. Give us maybe a particular aspect of these blessings, Lord, that we just can't get out of our minds this week, that we just find a worship song to sing that describes it, that we, we are just regularly communing with you in prayer. Draw our hearts to yourself to glorify you in whatever this week brings, to praise you through the storms of life, to praise you through the difficulties and the brokenness. Lift our eyes in all the busyness and all the stress to see your glory in our lives, in this church, because we are in Christ. Thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. And may this final song help us to do just that and prepare our hearts for the week to come of praising you all day, every day, because you are worthy. You deserve it. And it's in Jesus' name. In Christ alone.